Please remember, conversations during EY podcasts should not be relied upon as accounting, tax, legal investment, nor other professional advice. Listeners must consult their own advisors. I think on a global scale, right now, we still have enough food for everybody to live a healthy life. Lots of different aspects that we have to work on, but it's solvable. We can still do something. We can solve global hunger. If we can raise the bar for everybody from a production standpoint, address food waste, all of a sudden you're in a global food surplus kind of environment. Now, that those are two massively difficult things to accomplish. So I don't want to say it's easy, but yeah, we can feed the planet. Truth is, humanity can save itself and our planet. And right at this very moment, there's someone who's taken on this challenge and is on a path to solving an incredibly tough global problem. This podcast was created to tell you about them. You're listening to Better Heroes, a show from the global EY organization about the untold stories of entrepreneurs devoting their lives to impactful innovation. And I'm your host, Matt C. Smith. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about agriculture and food security. On today's episode, we're joined by Rob Dengowski and Bernard Kovic. Rob is an EY global food and agriculture leader, and Bernard is the founder and head of the Innovation Accelerator at the UN World Food Programme. They're here to help us understand how climate change and a growing world population will affect food production as the UN estimates that global population hit 8 billion in 2022. That means we're going to need a lot of innovation to feed all those people. But Bernard and Rob believe world hunger is solvable, and they're here to tell us why. So I've been around agriculture my entire life, but really for the last probably 10, 15 years, I've taken a uh, specific interest in food and agriculture. And obviously with population growth, food security and planet health has become kind of top of mind. Planet Health. I love that. And your sort of development through your journey with EY, how has that shaped from your career before that? I mean, have you always sort of had a focus towards how to optimize and use technology in things like regenerative agriculture, things like topsoil regeneration, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I think those issues have certainly become top of mind in the last, call it five, seven years. But I think a lot of the clients I've been dealing with, you know, over the 15 years have been, how do I serve consumers better? How do I produce more off my land? How do I optimize profits? It's been very, very much a traditional kind of view in that sense. But I think in the last five years or so, the conscious awareness of, you know, the impact on the planet and impact on health on a broader scale has, has become more top of mind. So now we see technology and where is it going to fit to do things that are, you know, taking care of soil, taking care of pasture lands, you know, taking care of water use. So it's uh, absolutely something that we see is uh, critical to our future food system. If we look at the world of agriculture, I think the majority of us would think to a farmer in a field, right? The word innovation, technology, don't really have a place on that landscape, do they? Or do they? I think they always have. I think it's one of the most untold stories that's out there. I mean, if you think about autonomous vehicles, we're all kind of excited about to see where that market goes. We've had auto steer tractors for almost 15 years. So we've used telematics in the field to drive tractors for a long time. Some of our better heroes are actually using apps and technology with tractors. Go check out our episode with Jahil Oliver. 
I think the key is, you know, these problems aren't solved from the boardroom and they're not solved from the fields by themselves. I always say, you know, we need boots and suits. So we've got to kind of link the field and the boardroom around how do we solve this together? Because this is a, this has to be a collaborative solution, a collaborative exercise. This is certainly not someone uh, looking for a silver bullet. I love that. Boots and suits. Um, Bernard in Munich with the Innovation Accelerator. Fill us in. What is your background that has led you to have the role you have today impacting the world of food production that you have? Yeah. I mean, incidentally, I started my career as well working in private sector management consulting with lots of industrial goods companies, also tech companies, building new business, incidentally. And it's probably 12 years back that I then thought about like, how can I use my skills to also like further like social impact? This is when I joined the World Food Program, the United Nations and built up the internal management consulting team. Then together with a friend, I actually co-found an app that's called Share the Meal, where it can, it's a micro donation app where with 80 cents, you can feed a child for a day. Like, so like that's a basic concept, which is now the World Food Program's corporate donation app. And then essentially from that experience to that just wearing that many support infrastructures out there for social entrepreneurs, I then actually got the chance to start the global accelerator for the UN World Food Program to support social entrepreneurs, both in emergency response, as well as sustainably ending hunger in agriculture in developing countries. So really the focus of the journey, if you look at it right now, it all makes lots of sense, but like, it's, I guess, the passion of like believing in innovation, technology startups, and that we can actually use that to benefit some of the most vulnerable or hungry people on the planet. So recycling your own entrepreneurial knowledge into now existing startups and businesses that are in the ag tech fit space, agricultural technology space. I'm curious about the landscape of agricultural technology companies. Where are these businesses located and what kind of innovations are they working on? Yeah, no, and I think there we need to differentiate like, you know, food production and then sometimes like the startups or innovation that we are supporting, they might be the startups that actually connect farmers to markets or they might be the startups that do satellite images or like using technology to benefit lots of smallholder farmers in developing countries. Typically, when we're receiving up to 2000 applications of startups and nonprofit innovations per year right now, and predominantly they actually come from Africa. So like lots of startups, lots of entrepreneurs, lots of talent coming from the African continent. But then we are looking for innovations and startups globally. So they might be coming from the US, from Western Europe or anywhere on the planet, like could be even from Afghanistan for some of the startups that we're looking at. Now, the goal of for us, of course, is not making money, but like how can we positively impact the lives of as many people as possible and ultimately eradicate global hunger? And that's an interesting point, global hunger, right? Because when we talk about agriculture, we talk about food, like I opened with, gents, is the issue hunger? Is the issue production? Is the issue consumption, overconsumption, underconsumption for some? What's the real issue when we come to agriculture, food production? You know, 8 billion people, 8 billion mouths to feed, right? The majority of those mouths feed themselves, right? Whether you are a smallholder farmer in Nigeria, for example, one of the largest subsets of that individual culture globally. But what's the real problem here? Is it transportation, consumption, overconsumption, underproduction? I think on a global scale, right now, we still have enough food for everybody to live a healthy life. Now, the challenge is that the truth is oftentimes contextual on a regional basis, and you need to really think about 
what's actually driving hunger in any particular area. It might be just the availability of the food, like because of a drought or because of a war, there's not enough food in any particular country. It could be access. So like people just don't have enough income. They're too poor to afford the food. Or it could be the utilization. So it's like, you know, talking about food waste, talking about like using the food to actually feed animals. Or maybe it's about like how you're making use of the calories and the food that you have. It's usually not as simple as a silver bullet across. But the fact is, it's a solvable problem. We can actually do something about it. And even with a growing world population, yes, we need to have more innovation. We actually need to do more also because of climate change to have, you know, lower the climate impacts, regenerate the soils, lots of different aspects that we have to work on, but it's solvable. We can still do something. We can solve global hunger. What are the current stats with global hunger and who's going hungry? Rob, what's the problems there that you're experiencing and how are you dealing with those? We've kind of looked at it and said there's several major paradoxes in our food system. One of those is we have hunger and we have obesity in the same world. So you think about that. It's like, well, why can't we slide food off one plate and put it on another? It seems pretty simple at a philosophical level. But what's more interesting is in many parts of the world, the most obese people actually reside in the same exact regions as the most hungry people. So it's either you can't afford to eat or all you can afford to eat are foods that are actually not necessarily good for you. So we've got those kinds of issues that are really paramount, yet the investment and focus on those is not as much as saying, hey, let's do something that's organic or plant-based. So you kind of follow the money to some degree. The other thing I think is you kind of look at where's the real big issue. The real big issue is we continue to try to move food from areas of surplus to areas of deficit. And in some cases, we can do that with big grains, right? I mean, you look at global trade, you can see that happen. But then at the same time, to move food from food miles from really long distances, you got to start to add things into that food, preservatives and things that give it longer shelf life and things like that. And consumers are saying, wait a second, I don't want that stuff in my food. So we've got to find a way to kind of produce effectively, efficiently, and have a short supply chain to where we can actually match producers and consumers. All that sounds like, okay, you, you just solved it. <laughs> it's massively complex when you think about all the many factors that are in, inhibiting that today. What are the factors inhibiting that? I think it's education. I think it's access to capital. I think it's interest in the industry. I mean, if you think about people that are exiting the agriculture industry, because candidly, they have that perception, of, oh, it's not very high tech. It's not very kind of cool and sexy, right? And then, you know, the reality is, we're moving away from a globalized economy, moving into more of a lighter globalization structure. Depending upon how far we go in a geopolitical you know, nature, we may find that it really disrupts a lot of our trade practices that we've come to, to really rely on. And so this food system, like we, we run a platform we call Food System Reimagined, which is a decade forward look at the food system. And we look at this and just think of all the trends that are affecting it. And Bernard did a nice job of highlighting rising incomes, global population increases, all these things are really creating a whole new food system as we look forward. Rob, Bernard, let's maybe go through them one by one, because it seems as if there's multitudes of problems to solve here, or different areas, right? Traditionally, farmers in most parts of the world, it's an inherited business. It's a family business, right? And you're seeing more and more of those individuals not wanting to take on the farming practices. I'm talking about farming on a more kind of industrial level. Agripreneurship is one aspect of it. Bernard, you come across agripreneurs, I can imagine, those actually working in the innovation of farming and elsewhere. 
What's your experience with agripreneurs and how can we encourage more people to see agriculture as an exciting and vibrant place to work? Yeah, I think it's really one of those elements of like showing the good examples and like kind of the exciting stories about startups or innovation that really make a difference for people. But you can create an income, but then also it could be a springboard for maybe something else or creating like big change on the planet as well. And I, I think this is where in recent years, I mean, we've seen trends of like food tech, agri-tech, where if you think about like plant-based solutions, plant-based meats, which was really exciting, food delivery startups, or like the quick commerce type of startups that are also like in the widest sense in the food systems. And the same applies to some of the startups that we're seeing in like the space, it could be like hydroponics, growing plants without soil. Like people may know this as vertical farms, right? Like that have been very mm. successful. And like when people think about vertical farms, probably people think, oh, you're a cool entrepreneur. So we need to bring in more of this, oh, you're this cool entrepreneur kind of feeling. And, you know, maybe there is other things like we also have been working on farm to fork digitization on blockchain platforms. But I do see lots of opportunity because as we were just discussing earlier, yes, it's certainly in some areas still very traditional. So that also means there's opportunity for positive type of disruption. When we come to that sort of grass and root level development, it's not just about innovations and being more efficient and effective. Of course it is. But it's also about looking at new ways of farming. But actually, I've learned that it's not just about looking at new ways. It's about doing old ways in a new way. Is that right with regenerative agriculture, Rob? Yeah, that was almost my reaction. You said new ways of doing farming. I mean, I think a lot of this is using the old ways, just telling people you're doing it. I mean, that's the amazing thing about farmers. I've never met a farmer yet, and I spent a lot of time there, right? And I've never met a farmer yet who's who has a complete dismissive attitude towards their land. Mm. They want to take care of land. That's their biggest asset on their balance sheet. Mm. So they want nothing more than take care of that land, and they want it to be productive every year. So we can get into really distinct regenerative ag practices, crop rotations, and no-tills, and th those sorts of things. What, what is it in its, in its plainest, simple terms for me to understand and what our friends to grasp those who aren't working in this industry? Regenerative agriculture, what is it? Right now, regenerative agriculture has a definition that is varied. So I don't want to say, here it is, right? But if you really kind of pull it back, one of the most core tenets is really taking care of the soil health. That's where you hear more in that regenerative ag space. So to do that, though, I think what ends up happening with those big companies that you mentioned is now all of a sudden they need to have a different relationship with farmers. Mm. They need to find farmers who want to grow these crops they need in a certain way and develop that relationship in a different way. They may need to co-invest with them, help them get access to capital, access to technology, do things differently. So that's where I think we're going to see some rewiring of the uh, kind of supply system on the front end of food. On a smaller scale, startups are coming up with creative and innovative solutions to all of the problems we've described so far. And Bernard's Innovation Accelerator is helping the best of the best. We're trying to get the word out that you can actually do positive with innovation with startups, helping hungry people across the world. Now, out of all those applications, we typically then select up to 10 teams that go into what we call an innovation bootcamp, which is a one-week training program with a pitch event towards the end where they have the chance to present in front of like investors, government representatives, foundations, private sector companies. And then the best teams go into what we call sprint phase. They get up to $100,000 in cash, equity-free funding, grant funding. 
hands-on support through our team and connections to the World Food Program field offices and partners to really like either do a new pilot or go from one country to the next and like expand the impact of those startups or innovations. And then the best go on into our scaling program, scale-up enablement program to help them expand the impact from one country, like going in different other countries than afterwards, really for global big impact. There are so many different places along our supply chain where food can be wasted. A solution is definitely not one size fits all. On the production end, farmers need ways to prevent post-harvest losses. Solutions include ways of drying fruits, vegetables and grains, as well as airtight and temperature controlled containers. On the consumption end, businesses and individuals need to consider their needs and strive to purchase just the right amount of ingredients. Some solutions to this include data and analytics. Now, in terms of just food waste, I mean, transport is one thing, but like the biggest food waste actually or losses happen in developing countries, typically still on farm level. So sometimes 40 to 50% of the food is lost. It is never entering the food systems. It's called post-harvest losses. So like that's big, big impact. I mean, and think about all the resources that are wasted that's not actually going into productive food. We actually have an initiative, post-harvest loss initiative, where it's essentially drying the crops and putting it into airtight storage and silos. It's a little bit like a fridge for like what we would have, but like it's typically storage for grains. And we see lots of innovations there. We work on a public-private partnership venture model there right now, actually. The other thing, in, on the other end, in developed countries, Depending on the country, the estimates, it might also be 30 to 40% of the food that's lost at restaurants, at household level, you know, that's just thrown away. Food waste in transport is also interesting. That's when you then typically think about like the different aspects, like what are you transporting? And then do you have a cold chain or a cool chain also, right? So this is typically when you're thinking about like, let's say you're growing vegetables, you go to a market and if you don't sell them the same day, if you don't have access to cooling or cold storage, essentially the food gets lost right? This is where still on local level, you investing there is a big thing. Now, the food waste in developed countries, again, like on the other side, and it's also about like, how can you actually steer the consumption and the supply chain benefits? So like, this is where the challenge is like, how much do you need to order? How much do you have to have on stock? It's a big data challenge, essentially, because who knows what everybody wants to buy tomorrow, right? So like, it's challenging. If we knew all of this, or we only had limited choices, like, of course, you could optimize. I'm curious, and this goes to both of you, which is the lowest hanging of the problem areas to solve? I mean, which has the greatest impact with the least amount of input? Is it on the agricultural level? Is it on the supply chain, as you just said? For example, post-harvest losses, right? Is that the one thing we could solve to make the biggest impact today? I'll give you an example. Like in Uganda, there's four and a half million smallholder farmers. Three and a half million of those smallholder farmers do not have any access to small, like this kind of post-harvest handling facilities. So 50% of the harvest of those farmers is essentially getting lost, or up to 50%. So imagine the waste that's occurring there. And like, it's very simple thing. You essentially, you're drying the crops and then you're putting it into an airtight, it's a special plastic bag or a silo. And then the food loss goes down to like only one or 2%. So the smaller farmers double or sometimes almost triple the income. Like the lever is huge if you think about this. Um, but I think it varies too where you're at in the world, right? You gave a great example of Uganda. You come over to the US or Western Europe or something. The issues are very different. You may find post-harvest loss is a major issue in a Uganda, but post-meal loss is maybe a bigger issue in other parts of the world. Maybe serving portions are too large 
So we're wasting and we're throwing it away. So I think you find a huge variable depending upon where you're at in the world. I, and probably our friends listening to this too, ideas are spinning. I feel like this is quite an interesting area to get involved in. I went vegan for seven months to try it. And I urge anyone to try it as well. Obviously, speak to your doctors and first uh, before you do such a thing. But I enjoy the experience. I'm a flexitarian right now. Rob, Bernard, are you vegetarian, vegan, flexitarians? And what are you seeing? Is it a right move to go into that world and become vegan, flexitarian, plant-based? Again, I love Bernard's term of personalization. I think we're moving from a system of scale to personalized food, right? So let's fast forward out to five, 10 years from now, right? And so I've ran my genetic makeup. I know exactly how foods interact with my body. You know, oh, by the way, beets don't make me feel very good, but celery gives me energy, whatever it is, you know? So now I know how foods interact with my body. I get a personalized blueprint of my genetics, right? How did you do that? I have a wearable. A wearable is something like a smartwatch or a fitness tracker. Here it is. It's 1020 here in Nashville. And my watch just goes off and says, you know what? You're 20 grams short of protein right now because it's all personalized. It knows exactly what I want. And I go, okay, well, I'm 20 grams short. What are my options? Well, I can have some beef jerky sent to you. Here's a pea-based option, so on and so forth. And I go, oh, I, I'm going to go with this option. You want that delivered to you? Do you want to walk down the street and get it? Here's two stores that you can go to. And oh, by the way, you should take a walk because you're short on steps so far. That kind of personalization is what we should expect in the future. I live in the U.S. We've always had the food pyramid. So everyone subscribed to the food pyramid. I think that's kind of out of date because I think everyone has their own geometric shape. It might be a pyramid. It could be a diamond. It could be anything. So I think personalization becomes the key on any of these diets. What makes the most sense for you? And then how do I actually make it easy to get there. Thanks, Rob. Bernard, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, this is where it's getting really tough in terms of, because we're not just talking about facts, we're also talking about behavior change and like long-term behavior change, right? So I think this is true for everybody who's probably listening to this as well, where it's like, the first step is maybe having an awareness. Second step is really knowing the difference. So like knowing that maybe eating only meat or maybe you should replace one meal where like you don't eat as much meat or you know vegetarian that can have a positive influence on climate and so on like maybe knowing that is good and then you need to actually change it um, and in the same way is like maybe you drink one coffee less a day uh, it doesn't cost you like a lot of willpower maybe to do that but this is where in the area of agriculture food food consumption is not just about what you eat and like the choice you make but also what you don't actually do <laughs> because that thing that you do not consume doesn't have to be produced you know matt let me if i'm one of your listeners right now i'm thinking okay you're talking to a couple folks who are thinking about solving world hunger which has always been this elusive equation right and at the same time we're talking about all this stuff that's changing so let me just reflect on what's not changing let me give you a perspective. So in the consumer world, consumers have bought food off two criteria, have, and I think they'll continue to buy off the same two criteria, affordability and taste. And so the question then becomes, what's criteria three? Is it healthy for me, healthy for planet, whatever? But if you do all those things and it doesn't taste good or it costs too much, you're not going to get there. So affordability and taste are the constants that the consumer in. On that topic, are... The large businesses that you work, the large grain producers, providers, etc., are they looking at these types of grassroots innovations and incorporating those kind of businesses? You mentioned the self-driving tractors. What other sort of technologies are you seeing crossover between the startup and innovation world and traditional agricultural and farming? 
Yeah, you know, vertical farms, controlled environment agriculture. You know, we're seeing we're very active in conversations with grocery and and big restaurants to say, should you verticalize certain categories that are in your stores? And one of the ways you might do that is actually run a vertical farm inside a grocery store. So think about that from a consumer standpoint. You want fresh and local. There's nothing more fresh and local than something growing right inside the store. So we are on the cusp of consumers touching a plant for the very first time when they stick it in their grocery basket. So I see innovations like that. I see lots of things on the upfront end where we're seeing imagery go to the next level. We were doing satellites and drones, and that's great. Now we're into multi-spectral, hyperspectral cameras that are really providing some insights into farmers around what's going on in my field. How can I optimize my yield? There's a lot, a lot of those innovations are crossing over. The real thing I'm curious about with all of this is, gentlemen, can you solve the question for us? Is there enough food to feed all of us? Yeah, I think if you could capture the 30% of food wasted today and and run that out on a, I'd say capture the 30% that's wasted, optimize the yields of places that are not getting the same yields in other parts of the world. So many parts in the uh, emerging farming environment, smallholder farmers, their yield that they're getting is sometimes 25% on the same crop that other people in other parts of the world. That's education, it's access to fertilizers, access to lots of things. If we can raise the bar for everybody from a production standpoint, address food waste, all of a sudden you're, you're in a global food surplus kind of environment. Now, those are two massively difficult things to accomplish. So I don't want to say it's easy, but yeah, we can feed the planet. Bernard, I, yeah. I'd love to hear your, your, your perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, as a matter of fact, global hunger is a totally solvable problem. Like the unfortunate truth, though, is that like in the last three years since COVID, like between 2019 and now, like actually the number of people marching towards starvation, like acutely hungry people has more than doubled. So it's 350 million people right now that are marching towards starvation. And the big drivers for that is like this conflict. There's also climate change. And that's real. Like this is like where... You might feel like maybe it's a little warmer, maybe it's a little colder, maybe there's less rain, maybe there's more rain. If you are in a developing country and you don't have a safety net, you don't have savings, you have an issue when there is no rain, right? Like it is still totally possible. We all can live on a planet healthy and have something to eat and also deal with maybe undo some of the damage that has already been done and then have a better planet for everybody. It sounds as if these sort of five, six areas the agricultural aspect, that grass grain level, the hunger and obesity element, overconsumption, underconsumption, the climate environment element, the transport wastage access. These are the key areas which all need solving. You're already leading that on the beacon for us there. And I want to see more boots and suits, gents, don't you? Always key. Yeah. And I, I can only encourage people like this can be a very attractive field to innovate, to create a company. There's lots of opportunity, like where you see problems, that's a field for opportunity. And we can increase food production, efficient food production, sustainable food production, feed our ever-growing population because there is enough food to go around. We just need to be a bit more efficient about how we distribute it, how we grow it, and why and when we eat it, right? Absolutely. I'm actually very encouraged. I have to just say it. I mean, I think we see investment pools that are emerging. We're seeing better collaboration across the system. And I think the millennial Gen Z generation's renewed curiosity in food or their curiosity in food, and I think it's renewed a lot of the curiosity of many of us in COVID, is all of a sudden food isn't just one of those things that I have to do three times a day. It's an experience. It's a community. It's a 
real area of interest for a lot of people. So I, I'm actually very bullish on where our food system goes here over the next 10 years and beyond, frankly. Are you bullish, Bernard? I, I'm hopeful. Like, and I think this is my day job, but also my passion to show that it's possible to change, that we can make a positive influence on people's lives with innovation and technology. And I'm really hopeful that also like people who listen to this, like you get an inspiration, like there's stuff we can do. Each one of us can do something to lead to a better planet. You heard that, friends. Let's all contribute and support Rob and Bernard along the way. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you bringing some perspective and some conscious awareness. Thanks, gents. Thank you for joining me, Matt C. Smith, on this episode of Better Heroes. You can learn more about Bernard at innovation.wfp.org and you can learn more about Rob at ey.com. And you can learn more about EY Ripples and all of our impact entrepreneurs at ey.com slash EY Ripples. The links are in our show notes. Oh, and please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Better Heroes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also rate and leave our show a review to help others find out about the amazing work our impact entrepreneurs are doing. Before we go, we'd really like to thank our podcast producers, Human Group Media, who helped us bring this show to life. That's it for today's episode. We'll be back next week. Better Heroes is a project of EY Ripples, a global program to mobilize people across the EY network to help solve the world's most urgent social and environmental challenges. By extending EY skills, knowledge, and experience to impact entrepreneurs on a not-for-profit basis and forging collaborations with like-minded organizations, EY Ripples is helping scale new technologies and business models that are purposefully driving progress towards the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The views of third parties set out in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the global EY organization or its member firms. Moreover, they should be seen in the context of the time that they were made. <laughs>